Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Last decade, we've seen the steady and well-funded march of China's state-run media overseas. Well, now that could be coming to an end. China's media, in general, is facing unprecedented pushback in the West. In the U.S., the fight over TikTok and WeChat is underway. But today, we're focusing on the fate of the state-run media, and in particular, CGTN, the international arm of the state-run broadcaster CCTV, which could just be determined by two of our guests. Two of our guests today have lodged official complaints against CGTN: Peter Darlun, who later set up Safeguard Defenders, and private investigator Peter Humphrey. They were both forced to make confessions while in Chinese detention, which were later broadcast in China and abroad by CGTN. We're also joined by Sarah Cook from Freedom House. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Peter Humphrey. Let's start with your experience. You were working as an investigator in Shanghai when you were in prison for unlawful acquisition of citizens' personal information. In 2013 and 2014, CGTN aired your forced confessions and those of your American wife in the United Kingdom. And you can still watch it today on CCTV4's website. Can you talk us through the conditions under which these confessions were obtained? Yeah, I think I need to set the stage slightly here and say that、um, this happened after I had spent nearly forty years、um, involved with China in various ways, initially as a teacher and then as a journalist, and, and later as a businessman. I actually spent nearly two decades、uh, as a foreign correspondent.、So、it was quite. Involved with China during that period, but not always stationed there. And then, for the following 15 years,、um, I was in a business called risk management, which is essentially fraud investigation. And for the final 10 years of that, I and my wife had our own fraud investigation consultancy、um, based in Shanghai and Hong Kong and Beijing. I was considered to be something of a thought leader matters of avoiding fraud or investigating fraud in business operations in China. And it came as a tremendous shock to the community, especially the due diligence community, when we vanished and, and later were, were discovered to have been detained in July 2013. And this was indeed very much tied in with、um, the Chinese authorities' crackdown and, and investigation against GSK, the pharmaceutical company, and they had hired us in April of that year. Um, to investigate the background of a very senior executive in that China operation, who they had just forced out company, and she had taken the role of、uh, head of、um, government relations in China before they kicked her out. And when we were engaged, we were told that she was suspected of waging a smear campaign against the company because she was unhappy with her dismissal. In fact. GSK at that time was completely well aware of the fact that it was being investigated by the Chinese authorities, that there had been a number of what we can call whistleblower allegation reports sent to GSK's global board and audit committee, and the same complaints had been sent in some form or another to the Chinese authorities. So we were actually hired on completely false pretences. 
um, to investigate the background of somebody who they told us was a smear campaigner, but who they, they clearly knew very well was, was, was likely to be a whistleblower collaborating with the Chinese police. So this brought my company, ChinaWise, into collision with a police investigation into the GSK bribery rackets that the report that we wrote about this lady actually fell into her hands. Um, how that happened, uh, only GSK knows, um, but um, it did. And he said, she's coming after you. And he said that to me on the 2nd of July, 2013, eight days later, my office was raided, my home in Beijing was raided, my wife and I vanished. Um, so that's how this whole thing began. And then after we had been detained for nearly two months, maybe seven weeks, um, in the Shanghai number one detention center, in very harsh conditions, uh, we were subjected to this so-called uh, forced uh, televised confession, the first one. And, you know, this was at a time when we had been severely broken down by extremely harsh uh, incarceration conditions, everything from nutrition, hygiene, sleeping conditions and so forth uh, was absolutely primitive. And it was you know, most certainly intended to break prisoners down um, to get them to a point where they just cave in and confess to a crime that they've never committed. Um, so we were in that state and in quite bad health as well after just seven weeks in, in these cells. If you can imagine, you know, how some prisoners just break down because they're sleeping on the floor with 12 other people in a space of 15 square meters, the toilet's a hole in the floor in the corner, um, you're eating out of a, a little doggy bowl that gets shoved through the bars with a load of crap in it and so forth, and uh, it's really disgusting. And, and you, you, communications have been blocked between you and your family, you and your friends, very limited uh, communications with your consulate employer. Um, so. The spirit is crushed by these conditions. That's what's intended. So with this so-called forced confession, one Saturday morning in uh, August, late August, the, the police summoned me down from my cell. I was taken down very, very unusually to meet my interrogators on a Saturday morning in the interrogation block. And, and they told me that their lingdao, you know, their superiors, wanted me to meet the media. And, you know, we, we discussed it, we haggled it, I was deeply concerned. And in the end, I agreed that I would meet one or two or three uh, print journalists, but I, I would not undergo any filming or photographing, so no images. And uh, I thought that was agreed. But then on the Monday morning, I was, first of all, rather unusually uh, offered a, a sedative by prison patrol doctor who came by our cell bars and said, oh, Peter, this will help you calm down a bit. Because I had been suffering from severe anxiety and panic attacks, and I'd been complaining about that. I hadn't slept. So they gave me this sedative on Monday morning, and I took it thinking, great, you know. Um, and then 20 minutes later, they brought me a brand new prison vest, you know, these orange jet vests, and uh, um, told me I, I should put that on and throw the old one away, the old one being dirty and torn and stinky. And then another 20 minutes later, Officers came to my cell door and called me out and said, Peter Jermati, and I didn't that means, really... Meet, that means meet the media. So I was taken out of my cell in a state of sedation where I was actually drowsy and groggy. And you can see that later on. If you, if you watch some of the, the clips of the, the scene inside the cage later, you can see I was slurring, audibly slurring my words. So I was escorted down the corridor 
and I was being filmed by guards or orders, whatever you want to call them. A crowd of people with cameras kind of pounced, ambushed uh, me, and I was being filmed, I was being photographed, but I'm taken into a, a, a very large interrogation cell, which I've never been in before. It had quite a large podium at one side, a bit like a tribunal. Um, and in the middle of this room, there is um, a cage made of silvery steel bars, very thin bars. And you can actually see those bars behind me when you when you look at the TV clips. See those vertical bars. And if you look at other forced confessions scenes involving Chinese prisoners, for example, you can see exactly the same bars behind them too. So I was placed in this cage and, you know, I was being mobbed and surrounded by all these people with cameras, their lenses through the bars, and I was locked into a locking bar chair. Some people call it a tiger chair, and I'm still handcuffed. So there's this locking bar is, is locked across my lap. So I'm locked in three ways, handcuffs, locking bar chair, and cage itself. And the police officers who'd been involved in my daily interrogations were in there. For the first time, they were wearing their uniform. And the very one who was my lead interrogator, his name was Ding, Inspector Ding, had a clipboard with questions written on it. And he was standing outside the cage at one corner asking these questions. And, you know, I was kind of dopey, but not asleep enough that I couldn't speak. And I was struggling to navigate between saying something which would get me out of that cage and not saying anything that would falsely incriminate me. And that's a tough call. He would repeat the questions many times over because he wasn't satisfied with my answers. And he would he would he would try and ask me, he would try and tell me to say say something different than I'd said and so forth. It's impossible when you are the prisoner in the cage to really count the time and know how long you were there for, but I would say at least half an hour. And I was never asked for my consent to this type of media interview. I was never asked for my consent to what they packaged and broadcast ever. So for me, this was entirely against my will, against my prior agreement. And what they did with this material, I only discovered after my release from China, nearly two years later. And when I saw it, I was shocked because it was out of all recognition. It did not resemble to me, what I had said and tried to say and so forth. And secondly, you know, I was shocked because in the civilised world, media do not behave like that. And interviews are not conducted in cages with prisoners who have not either been indicted or tried or convicted. Mm. It doesn't happen in the civilised world, but this is what they did. And they broadcast this globally, internationally, including in my own country. So this is what happened. And then a year later... They did something similar, but without the cage, on the second occasion. So, Peter Darling, you also were forced to make a confession after you were detained for working for an NGO. I mean, how much is there in Peter's description that sounds familiar to your experience? Uh, there's not very much, actually, in so far that uh, Mr. Humphrey's confessions back in 2013 and 14. That was really the beginning of China starting to use these kind of confessions again. Uh, when I came around to do mine in the early days of 2016, they've made quite a lot of changes. Uh, and I witnessed a lot of those changes myself. Uh, 
unlike Mr. Humphrey, I was told to take off my prison vest and put on my civilian clothing. Uh, even though I spent a lot of time sitting in a tiger chair pretty much every night, for the confession, I was instead taken to a much nicer meeting room. Uh, to, basically, they've started moving away from having these kind of prison settings, like we've seen with Mr. Humphrey, to more sort of fake neutral settings to make them more, more believable. Um, uh, but, so that's but, become really the standard. But your experience, I mean, the interrogation that you were subject to was quite intense, wasn't it, ahead of the confession? Yeah, the confession came after about three weeks of me being placed into the, at the time, very little known RSDL system, residential surveillance at a designated location. So I wasn't arrested. Uh, I was instead taken to one of these custom-built secret prisons that has popped up all over China where they can hold you for six months uh, incommunicado in solitary confinement. Uh, so what happened to me is that myself, several colleagues across many provinces, and my girlfriend were all taken uh, in a coordinated raid. And then I spent about three weeks doing nightly interrogations in one of these uh, tiger shares, usually five to six hours, on occasion a double session. Uh, so it was pretty intense for sure. And I went through actually a lie detector test for about five hours before the uh, the confession. Uh, but I guess another thing that is more common in my case, or more representative in my case than Mr. Humphrey, is that I was never told that I was meeting media, even though I could, of course, figure that out when I saw a CCTV cameraman, a CCTV camera, a CCTV reporter. Uh, and of course, everything was pre-scripted, uh, not just have a shower and put on your civilian clothing, but they basically came in with a piece of paper that had the questions and the answers written down. Uh, so it was more like a theater act between two people, myself and the CCTV journalist, that took place in a room surrounded by around a dozen state security agents uh, that would act as director, producer, uh, a lot of retakes, adding questions and answers back and forth. Uh, so it took pretty much all of an evening uh, to make my very brief um, uh, confession. And Peter Humphrey, to kind of move on from the confessions, you lodged a complaint in July this year um, with uh, Ofcom, the broadcast regulator in the United Kingdom, and they ruled that CGTN was guilty both in terms of violating your privacy and of unfair treatment. So could you talk us through why that's important and what sanctions CGTN might face? It's very important, I think, from a number of points of view of in which way was it a first of something? And um, so when I filed the complaint in November 2018, it was the first time anybody had ever filed such a complaint against an arm of the Chinese Communist Party outside China anywhere, anytime, as far as I know. Secondly, it was media. It was CCTV and CDN were basically named in and um, this was the first time that any individual had taken those outlets to task in the UK over violations of the law in their broadcasting. And it was for that reason that the announcement of this complaint at that time really aroused public attention, media attention and so forth. Another important thing about this complaint is that it, it, it was a snowball pushed off a mountain because very quickly after this complaint was filed by me, Many other complaints were filed by other parties. Some of these complaints were filed by victims of similar treatment. 
such as Peter Darling himself. Some of them were filed by members of their family, because in the case of Gui Minhai, he is still in captivity in China, and his daughter undertook his complaint. But basically, it set a ball in motion. It created a whole new area of awareness. It spotlighted a whole new specialized area of human rights violation in China. So the ball has been rolling now for nearly two years, and there are now a substantial number of complaints. If the complaint was already an unprecedented thing, the ruling itself is also an unprecedented thing. And I think many people were speculating and were worried that the delay in ruling was caused by political interference into a government agency, which is supposed to be an ombudsman, therefore independent partial. Ruling was really very important because I think it sets the tone and the scene for subsequent rulings on complaints that Ofcom is investigating. If that one was upheld, it's really very hard to imagine others among these present complaints not being upheld. The tone was also set in May when Ofcom issued a ruling on one of its own investigations into CGTN. Um, this was rare. But they investigated the Hong Kong unrest coverage of CGTN from last year. So there's now two cases, that one and mine, where we're waiting for penalty announcements and a whole bunch of cases where we're waiting for a ruling. And this is really tremendous pressure on the Chinese TV media. Although CCTV isn't nominally the defendant and the entity being punished, but CCTV is the owner, that's clear. Um, so, Peter, darling, your complaint, your personal complaint was rejected, but I understand that Safeguard defenders have lodged a separate complaint about the licensing eligibility of CGTN, which really speaks to um, who controls CGTN. Can you talk us through what that's all about? Yeah, for sure. Uh, my complaint and also several other complaints were rejected because the broadcast was by CCTV4, the international Chinese language channel, uh, which does not require a license. But when it comes to our licensing complaints, uh, which has led CGT into hire Baker McKenzie, which claims to be the premier law firm in the world, as well as rehire a former Ofcom director to help them, is causing, I think, quite some headache. The problem is that the broadcasting law makes it clear that no TV station can have a license if they are controlled or owned by a political party. And with the big reorganization of the Chinese media announced in 2018, uh, they are now directly controlled by a political organ. They are no longer hiding with one state organ in between. Uh, and this is something I do not believe the CCP expected would cause a headache because it's rare for Western observers to actually pay attention to how things function inside China, especially because the Chinese are quite good at using a very different kind of language when they speak in English compared to when they speak domestically to the, to the local audience. Uh, so we provided evidence from the CCP, from the Chinese government, from CCTV and CGTN that they are claiming themselves to be controlled by a political party. CGTN even claims it twice on their English language websites. Uh, so it's an open and shut case. There is absolutely no way out of this should Ofcom take its role seriously. Uh, but the fact that it's taken them seven months so far uh, and they simply have issued a statement saying that it's a complex issue that will take time to investigate seems to indicate that they're waiting for some kind of political cover political support to be able to actually uh, take a decision. 
And we did actually recently in the last few weeks after we raised some some complaints about this, see some support from key MPs in Britain who is uh, encouraging Ofcom to move along quickly with this. Uh, so we have great hopes that something good will come of this. As Mr. Humphrey said, these incredible delays and sort of the timeline indicates that they're taking this very seriously, not from a responsibility uh, of, of, of a regulatory body, but for political considerations. Sarah Cook, if we could bring you in now. Um, as Peter Humphrey mentioned, um, Ofcom also found that CGTN had violated the guidelines through its biased coverage uh, of the Hong Kong protests. I mean, why can't CGTN adapt to um, local broadcasting needs or local broadcasting requirements, you know, even not to violate the law? Um, what, what's stopping them? Is it because they are trying to please the party bosses back home? Or what's the, what's the barrier? Why can't they be like the BBC as they wish to be? Well, I think there's a question of who at CGTN might wish to be, right? I think you might have some journalists who would like to have a little bit more independence and, and impartiality. But, you know, as was very clear when Xi Jinping visited Chinese state media and in fact did a video link to CGTN America, uh, the media, especially CCTV and CGTN, need to be surnamed party. And that's really their primary goal. And I think in terms of the way internal incentives, you know, there's a combination of carrots and sticks, right? So especially if you're looking at higher executives, these are people often who have, you know, worked in the Chinese system, the Chinese media system. This isn't going to be their last job. It wasn't their first job. They need to kind of look ahead at what there's going to be their next position. And then, you know, so that's kind of maybe the positive incentives, right? And then there's the negative ones. I mean, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party goes after its own people, right? I mean, I think we see that a lot in China. And you don't know which direction the political winds are going to blow. But it's very clear that if you were to report in any way um, departing from uh, the na- main narrative regarding Hong Kong, you would actually be violating, in some cases, very specific directives because the Communist Party's propaganda department issues regular directives to media, all media in China, uh, certainly including CCTV, but I imagine that gets filtered over to C- CGTN uh, about what you can and cannot report on these some of these particular topics. I mean, even when the Hong Kong government had withdrawn the extradition treaty, uh, the extradition bill, because of the protests, there were rules about how that should be reported or not, because the Chinese state media were being very careful to not to show that there was some kind of concession to street protests. Um, so I think that's kind of the difficulty and the challenge. I mean, I think the flip side is that's a very, I would say, um, generous view of, of CGTN. I think the, the way in which particular Peter Humphrey's uh, description, uh, but also Peter Dollins of what happened uh, for them in the run-up and during this confession, uh, just show these are not normal media outlets. And there's no way that a journalist walks in to a room where there's a man in a cage and police surrounding him asking questions and can play dumb and say, well, I thought it was just a regular media interview, right? I mean, perhaps in Peter Dolan's situation might be a bit different, but clearly there are all kinds of police and especially there it's very clear that it's been scripted. No, I just wanted to point out, I mentioned that I was given a paper with the questions and answers. A copy of that paper was also given to the journalists. So when I say that it was a stage production, it really was a stage production from beginning to end. And that's pretty much standard from all the victims we've spoken to. 
And the same, of course, with Simon Chung, which is the, the last of the confessions aired on English language, international Chinese media quite recently. So Simon Chang was the employee of the British consulate in Hong Kong who was detained in China. Sarah, uh, talking about the internal incentives for people working for CGTN, I mean, have the lines shifted so much that even their own people don't know where they are? So we have this extraordinary situation of um, Chung Lei, who's an Australian citizen who's worked for CGTN as an anchor for seven years. So she surely knows where these lines are. Um, So what on earth is happening in her case? I think the lines are constantly shifting. That's what's so tricky with regards to, particularly under Xi Jinping, it's always been the case, I think, in China. But I think the lines are, are always shifting and people, you know, will try to be on the safe side um, and and try to navigate it. But, you know, as Peter Humphrey's example shows, too, it may not what happened to her, a particular individual may actually have nothing to do with your actual reporting or what you did. It may have to do with the fact that some relative of yours rubbed Xi Jinping or some other official the wrong way, that you did something else in your other life, in, in, in your business or something like that. So that's where it's just so, you know, kind of almost mafia like where it may have nothing absolutely and nothing to do with what you were doing or what her reporting was that got her somehow sucked into this rabbit hole um, that is the Chinese government and Communist Party's politicized uh, legal system. Um, Peter, darling, you have said that you believe CGTN may be forced to move its European headquarters to Brussels. I mean, what grounds do you have to believe that? We have information from a source that the China Media Group, which controls all of the state media organs, uh, China Radio International, CCTV, uh, CGTN, etc., have hired an international global media management company to prepare such a move. So it seems to be in the making. The question really right now is whether CGTN plans to maintain a small British headquarter or whether or not they will move entirely. Uh, We don't have information on that yet. Uh, we do know that they're taking this very seriously. Uh, in fact, the power of these kind of regulatory bodies' decisions compared to, say, political decision can be seen with what happened with Peter Humphrey. Uh, when me and Mr. Humphrey were in London and announced this complaint, we know that that very evening in Beijing started a two-day-long emergency meeting at the so-called Big Pants building where CCTV is headquartered in Beijing. We also know that when Ofcom launched the official investigation, CGTN, the English language channel, stopped broadcasting these confessions for almost exactly one year until Simon Chung happened. So we know that they're paying attention, close attention, and they are at least trying to adapt or minimize the damage, uh, especially considering the amount of money that's been dedicated to this European division. It's always in reaction to what's being said in international media. But we also think it's a matter of CGTN basically panicking because they made this confession over a month before and sat on it. And as soon as he spoke out in the BBC, I believe, they responded within, what, 24 hours and put this confession out and really shot themselves in the foot as far as the Ofcom procedure is going. So I wanted to ask you about the impact of such a move. I mean, CGTN has just spent millions of dollars on this new European headquarters. They've employed, you know, more than 100 journalists on quite high salaries. How much of a blow would it be if they had to move? Well, I mean, I think there's the financial blow, but if there's one thing that Chinese state media have a lot of its money, 
So if they move to Brussels, is this this kind of like forum shopping like you see with, uh, you know, libel lawsuits where, you know, the regulatory environment in Brussels is more lenient and therefore they're going, they, they end up moving to Brussels. So what does that say about, you know, again, the media regulatory environment? Peter Darlin, uh, if I could ask you, I mean, there's similar complaints being processed elsewhere in the world um, beyond the EU and beyond the UK. Um, how likely is it that CGTN could face similar action elsewhere in the world? There is the possibility uh, of this. Uh, I think one thing that's interesting is if they do flee the UK and if they get a, a, a ruling that uh, revokes their license, it will raise a lot of eyebrows in Europe in terms of lack of regulation because a lot of European countries do not have regulation half as good as what we see in the UK. Uh, and one of the reasons we really started this campaign is in the UK is that they have an unrivaled regulatory framework for TV that we don't see anywhere else. Uh, but we have pursued similar complaints in both Canada and the US, for example. Uh, we have not seen much movement on that yet, especially in Canada. There are also local partners looking at the possibilities of going after similar type of broadcast in New Zealand, Australia and France at the moment. So it is being paid attention to. Complaints are being filed, but there really is very few jurisdictions with a clear regulatory system like the UK and a clear process for how to bring about these complaints. Uh, in, in Canada, we have a very interesting situation because they have actually CRTC proclaimed in an official document when they gave CCTV for their license back in 2006, I think it was, that if they ever do this kind of abusive type of broadcasting, they will investigate and take action. And we have now provided evidence of this being done systematically over a six-year period, yet CRTC is trying their best to avoid having to take any action whatsoever. Uh, they are really running and hiding. So just to just to add to that, I, I recently read that decision a while back when I was writing something because I was looking a little bit more at the history of CCTV and the way it's been really used as like basically this arsenal to attack the enemies of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think what's, you know, what one of the things to keep in mind is that some of this type of activity has been going on for some time or it kind of pops up when there's a particular a priority enemy. And it, it, a lot of it, there was quite a spike uh, in the early 2000s when the big campaign against the Falun Gong spiritual group started. And they had to really demonize all of these meditators, again, both domestically, but also when there was international criticism. And so that licensing decision in Canada was basically saying, well, we, know, we recognize that this has happened. It seems to be an isolated incident and kind of a one-off. So we're going to give them their license anyway. But then with this caveat that Peter has noted... And so I think it is notable and I think it's it's very good that attention be shed on this and pressure be put to say that now this has resurfaced, uh, you know, in a much more systematic way against a much wider range of targets. You're not just talking about one particular group, um, but but against, you know, whether it's Hong Kongers or uh, or, or journalists or human rights activists or lawyers um, and, you know, and to really put pressure on them to, to hold on to that. But one of the things that was really interesting to me in reading the decision was to see uh, how far back some of this type of behavior uh, by CCTV uh, actually goes. So it seems to have been a pretty bad year for the Chinese state-run media in general. We're seeing all kinds of pushback across the world. Uh, you know, newspapers are refusing to carry these inserts, which they've been handsomely paid to 
to carry all these years. And there's a lot more concern about Chinese influence. I mean, do we see any shifts in Beijing's strategy in response to that? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think part of the pushback has been as a result of more aggressiveness uh, in terms of the tone and, and some of the content. I think it's also related to reg- other kinds of regulatory moves and transparency. China Daily, the main English language newspaper in China, has to do these like periodic filings, but they've been very vague about the amount of money they're actually giving to U.S. media. And I think it's also both a combination of pressure from groups like Freedom House saying you need more transparency and enforcement and maybe other journalists asking these questions that they were forced in one of their later filings to put each media outlet in how much money they were actually paying. And that got a lot of attention. It was not too long after that that you saw some of the major media like the New York Times very quietly discontinuing these inserts. Uh, In the UK with The Telegraph, uh, there was a big report, I think BuzzFeed had done it, about some of the content related to coronavirus that was appearing on the website of The Telegraph uh, as a result of these inserts. And again, very quietly, a few days later, all of the, the kind of People's Daily and uh, China Daily content sharing uh, was removed from the website. So I, I think the transparency has that effect. But I, I think the other thing I would say uh, in terms of the pushback is that there has just been a much more aggressive tone, and I think that's engendering a more of a pushback uh, from different places. The flip side of it is that the behavior of Chinese state media and the media influence in the global south is quite different. So I think that's also one of the places where there is less pushback. And so I think that's also might be already more investment and in general linguistic diversification. Uh, even in Europe, where you're seeing whether it's trying to buy up Portuguese media or uh, Italian and Serbian Twitter bots and the like, that, you know, it's this element of looking for maybe, again, this maybe kind of form shopping, looking for the places where there's a bit more opening and could be an impact and perhaps investing more there uh, if certain other places like uh, the UK or Canada or US are being closed off. Peter Humphrey, to, to pick up on something that Sarah touched on there, I mean, you've argued that the existing laws in the UK need to be expanded to include digital and social media platforms. Um, I mean, what would this look like and how could this happen? Well, the only things that I have in mind from my own personal experience are data platforms, um, not so much social media, because there are data platforms which all serious banks in the world are forced to use. They actually contain a lot of very erroneous uh, headlines about people who have been the victims of forced incrimination, forced imprisonment or forced confession in China. So I think there's a real problem with those due diligence databases used by the banks. Um, They are actually carrying out China's campaign to tarnish certain people unwittingly. Another thing is Wikipedia. There's a lot of activity on Wikipedia which is being orchestrated by the Chinese propaganda apparatus. We first saw this in colour in the battle of Wikipedists, Taiwan's straits between different versions of Taiwan's history. But I can tell you that this Wikipedia campaign waged by China is happening against many individuals as well. They have teams of people in China who are writing profiles on individuals. There might even be one on you, I don't know, um, but um, there's certainly one on me and there's certainly profiles on other people and organisations which are completely skewed, stilted and made to look negative. And I've identified one of the people behind uh, behind this and uh, 
connected him to a university in Edinburgh uh, and a town in, in, in Zhejiang province. And this is something I think which should be looked at. The problem is that Wikipedia is a very amorphous organization. It's very difficult to get things changed. But in general, many European countries have such weak regulations that ISIS could start a TV channel and start broadcasting beheadings at children's hour in my own home country of Sweden. And there is, real, there is no legal tool whatsoever right now to block that. And this is a similar situation to large parts of Europe. And that's just talking about uh, proper satellite cable and terrestrial TV stations. That's not even talking about newer media forms. Uh, so that regulatory framework is so old and obsolete that there's simply no way to deal with these new threats. And until we see some political will to start reforming this, we're fighting, you know, sure, we can maybe get CGTN out of the UK, but they will just move to Brussels and continue a similar type of activity. So it's very difficult with the current framework uh, to actually counter this properly. Um, I was just going to add in terms of some of the, the pushback, and especially on social media, I think one of the things we've seen have been more of the social media companies taking action with regards to Chinese state media. So, and not only Chinese state media. So when I was doing the research for my January 2020 report, whether it's CGTN or China Daily or People's Daily have, the way they describe themselves on Facebook is very misleading, right? It's like, you know, People's Daily is the mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party. And the tagline is something like the most widely read newspaper in China. Well, of course, it's, um, you know, China Daily, it's like the biggest English language newspaper in China. Well, of course, it's the only nationwide permitted English language newspaper in China. So one of the things that actually Facebook has changed is that now when you get a, you see something from those stations, it says Chinese state-run media. Uh, there is a, that tagline. So I think that's also one of the things that's been a bit more of a pushback from kind of the tech and the non-governmental sector, uh, really just, again, over the last year. That is meaningful because one of the reasons why they do all kinds of obfuscations like uh, trying to do media exchange agreements and things like that is because they know people around the world are going to be skeptical of content that they know is coming from a Chinese government state-run media. So they need to obfuscate that and anything that can shed light uh, for consumers uh, I think is, is, is really helpful. Um, I had a question for Peter Darlin. There was this study recently done in Serbia where people believed 44% of medical aid to Serbia in the coronavirus crisis came from China, when in reality it was only 0.6%, with more than 75% actually coming from Europe. How vulnerable do you think that Europe is to Chinese propaganda and how has it been so successful in places like Serbia? We've seen similar studies in other larger European countries as well. The results are not quite as extreme as the Serbia example, but Italy, there's been a, a census out recently, for example, uh, and they have been very successful in pushing their role. China in general does not actually spend that much money on aid and investment as people think. They do not spend as much money within the UN system as people think. But when they spend money, they demand a lot of concessions. For example, in the Serbia example, to receive this very small amount of aid, the president of Serbia had to go to the airport to receive the cargo plane and have it on state media. This is the kind of thing that doesn't happen from other countries. The EU would never have these demands, obviously. It's just ludicrous. Uh, so they managed to make very strong demands for 
relatively small levels of investment and aid, and then have that, of course, through state media, uh, not state media as such, but public uh, broadcasting, etc. And of course, that's going to have an effect. And I'm assuming we're going to see similar level of attention to this on social media as well, uh, which really drives perception, especially among younger people. So they're very good at getting large concessions from very little input. Just to follow on Peter Dolan's point with regards to actually both Serbia and Italy, uh, there were two investigations that found inauthentic uh, behavior uh, by Twitter trolls and bots to try to amplify particular hashtags that supported this narrative that China was giving so much coronavirus aid and in fact that the EU was not. And Italy, I think it was something like 38% of the tweets with the hashtag Grazie China, thank you China, were actually found to have been part of an inauthentic bot network. And again, it's sometimes attribution is difficult to know, you know, are these just some nationalistic pro-Beijing trolls, kids in the like Communist Party Youth League playing around or cyber offensive part of the PLA. But you do see that type of manipulative, uh, inauthentic behavior uh, reinforcing these narratives on social media uh, and some pretty strong evidence of that in, in at least those two countries. I can't help but be struck by the fact that uh, we're talking about the forced confessions by the two Peters, but what dominates a lot of the news today is hostage diplomacy in the form of the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Is this a new evolution on what your experience was? Like, Do you see any connection with what's happened to these unfortunate Canadians and Chung Lei and your experiences? Well, uh, personally, I don't see a connection with my own case. I can say with some certainty that Michael Kovrig and possibly Spavor would likely have been on TV at this point if it had not been for this conversation that's been dominating discussions about this for the last two years, about these forced confessions, etc. But they are two very good cases for hostage diplomacy, and that's something we've been seeing a lot more of over the last few years. Uh, we don't know if that's because foreign governments are more willing to, to admit that these cases are going on, than before, or if China has actually ramped up this behavior. I would assume it's a combination of the two. Uh, the one country that is, as far as we know, targeted the most, Japan, is one of those countries that is still keeping a tight lid on information about this. But we know there's as many as nine Japanese citizens that are quite obviously targeted as part of hostage diplomacy. And looking at the latest statements from the Chinese government, the Australian CGTN journalist Cheng Lei is almost certainly part of that now. Uh, it's becoming clearer with each statement from the Chinese government that she is not a victim of some internal process regarding her role in CGTN, as many people thought for the first couple of weeks. But again, many governments are still acting under this assumption that if they keep quiet, China will give some benefits, some concessions. Uh, obviously a strategy that's proven itself to be utterly worthless in the past, but they keep on going. Uh, so it's very hard to know the true scope of, of this phenomenon. The hostage diplomacy is basically a symptom of the nature of Xi Jinping. He is a very aggressive Chinese leader. We've seen, you know, very, very clear cut cases of hostage diplomacy in the last two to three years. But we're also seeing something which doesn't get remarked as much, and that is that people who were arrested as long as seven or eight years ago, maybe even nine years ago, foreigners from Canada, from um, Australia, from America, their cases, which weren't heavily politicized initially, have in more recent times become 
more politicised. Calm Gillespie may be one example for Australia, um, but there are others in America, such as the case of Mark Swydan. Um, and so I think that basically you've got a stock of prisoners there, and, and even if they're not taking new ones, they're they're converting some previously unpoliticized cases into hostages in the sense that they become part of the stock prisoners bargaining with a foreign power. I mean, I was just interested in your predictions going forward. I mean, do you think that we have already seen the high point of China's international media expansion? Or judging from what has happened in your case, and the amount of time that it has taken for your case to come to any conclusion, the fact that there still hasn't been any penalty. I mean, do you think that just leaves a lot of space for China's state-run media to continue to operate? First of all, it's quite clear that China has humongous intentions and plans here. I mean, you just have to read Xi Jinping's policy statements and speeches uh, from early 2018 to see the scale of his ambition Essentially, this campaign is designed to steal the global narrative on everything that happens in the world, not just on China. And the size of these Chinese media hubs in Washington, D.C., London and Nairobi is absolutely unprecedented and without equivalent. This shows intent. There is no other broadcaster in the world which puts such a large media hub anywhere outside its own country. Um, and now China has got three of them. It seems to me that they do anticipate losing their license in the UK, not necessarily from one of these personal complaints, but potentially from the serious complaint that they should never have been given a license in the first place because of party ownership. I'm pretty sure they're taking that seriously. And I think only the red lines drawn by free and democratic countries under the rule of law and enforcing those laws can stop it. So far as the penalties, which may come or not come out of my Ofcom complaint go, there are options. Uh, Ofcom can select from a range of options, starting with slap on the wrist, small fines, to revocation, cancellation of, of the licence. And based on all the factors which uh, we see now building up at Ofcom against Chinese television, I cannot see how they could possibly not cancel the licence unless it is a political decision, unless there's political influence leaning on Ofcom. And a final question for you, Sarah. We are facing a situation where more than a dozen American journalists have been forced out of China. Two Australian journalists have basically been forced to flee. We're seeing tightening of control on journalists in Hong Kong, this new police accreditation system, which basically um, makes life incredibly difficult for freelance journalists. It looks like Beijing is really stepping up. It, it's, it's sort of war on the fourth estate. How dangerous a moment do you think that we're in when it comes to sort of free flow of information and news um, regarding China? I don't know that I would put it as dang- in terms of dangerous because I, I think there are still, you know, a lot of very good journalists and a lot of ways of actually getting surprisingly incriminating information about what the Chinese government is doing, especially to its own people, from like local Chinese government websites, bidding uh, databases and the like. One piece of uh, research I had done with um, 
an, another researcher uh, was about these key individual databases that they use across China, uh, not only for, say, Uyghurs, you know, in Xinjiang, uh, but for people who practice Falun Gong. There were lists of people who were from state-sanctioned churches, uh, foreigners uh, in China, drug users, um, all that these kind of integrated uh, database collection systems. And you have like dozens of Chinese companies and they're advertising all of this on like websites in China. And, you know, we're like, oh my gosh, this is a horrible invasion of privacy. And you're, you're writing on your website that you're selling this to the Public Security Bureau of, you know, Shanghai or Zhejiang. So I, I think, you know, there's still a lot of, you know, information you can glean from that. And a lot of courageous Chinese people who are really, and networks of activists who are finding ways of getting information out. Television journalism is much more difficult. So I think in terms of really being able to get footage to air around the world that the Chinese government doesn't like, this does put a damper on that and actually increases then the incentive for news outlets uh, to actually use CCTV footage. So we didn't talk about that, but like one of the ways in which CCTV footage gets to international audiences is not only on CGTN. People want footage from China, and so then they use CCTV footage because that's the only footage they have because they blocked BBC from being able to go to this or that place in China. Um, so I think that's where the propaganda and the censorship are really two sides of the same coin. Peter Darlin, same question for you. I mean, what is your prediction sort of for the next couple of years to come? Have we seen the high point of China's international media expansion? Do you think all this work, all these complaints are going to impact the expansion? Or do you think there's, uh, you know, enough money, as Peter Humphrey says, that that expansion can can continue regardless? It just sort of, you know, keeps moving to new places? Well, I think there is a positive and a negative here. I think that as far as state or, as I like to point out, party media, CCTV and CGTN and CRI, we are going to see a continuation of a backlash, and I think it's going to have a limit on their power. The bad point uh, is that a significant part of influencing operations from China is not related to the official state medias. It is more like the tip of the iceberg. Uh, the real danger in terms of reach, at least for now, is the co-opting of local independent Chinese media in Australia, in Europe, etc. And in Africa, we see a lot of investment into media holding companies, etc. But I think have a greater reach at the moment than the official Chinese language media have. Uh, CGTN viewership in Latin America, for example, is almost laughably small. And as also pointed out, people know that this is state media. They know that they cannot really take it too seriously. So I do think when it comes to the tip of the iceberg, we're going to have at least some success. But I think the important part is that this sort of raises the awareness that this is just part of a much bigger operation and that people start paying attention to, for example, co-opting local independent Chinese radio, TV, and newspapers. Uh, in Australia, I mean, they're pretty much completed the takeover by now. In Europe, it's halfway, and I doubt that there is more than a handful of European politicians anywhere that are even aware that this is going on. So hopefully, these complaints and the penalties and the attention can at least start a, a, like a wider discussion on these issues. Uh, that's my hope. Peter Darlin, Peter Humphrey and Sarah Cook, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. 
You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Peter Darlin, Peter Humphrey, and Sarah Cook. Thanks also to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Our editing is by Andy Hazel. Our background research is by Julia Bergen. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.